Hello, beautiful people. I'm pleased to announce that my new play, The Velveteen Rabbit, opens tomorrow at Adventure Theater MTC in Glen Echo. I'm very pleased with their adaptation of the classic book, which not only retains all of Marjorie Williams' magic and heart, but expands it theatrically into a world of imagination containing fantastical adventures, singing busts, and a jabberwocky. Go to adventuretheater-mtc.org for tickets and performance information. The Velveteen Rabbit opens tomorrow at Adventure Theater MTC in Glen Echo. adventuretheater-mtc.org for tickets and performance information. Before we get started, I need to thank a new Patreon patron. Thank you, Jonathan Chisholm, for enjoying what you hear so much you thought, well, that's free, but I can pay money for that. But I thank you for paying money for that by giving you a bonus podcast called The Original Cast at the Movies and by thanking you on this podcast in this kind of announcery voice. So thank you, Jonathan. And if you want to be like Jonathan, and I think you should be like Jonathan, you should go to patreon.com slash originalcastpod and throw gobs of money at The Original Cast. There are several tiers of patronage, but they all come with access to our bonus monthly podcast, The Original Cast, at the movies. October's movie was that wonderful Prince classic, Purple Rain, with Chris Klimek and Rachel Mantufel. And next month, I can tell you, we're doing all that jazz. And the month after that, the original cast album Company documentary by D.A. Pennebaker. So there's a lot of great programming coming up. For once, I'm way ahead on recording these episodes, so I can tease. I'm teasing. Look at me, tease. Patreon.com slash OriginalCastPod. All right, here's the show. Whenever my world falls apart, I never lose hope or lose heart. Whatever the form of the storm that may brew, not with you to lean on, darlings, you. Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is a director and a Tony-nominated actor. It's Gabriel Barry, everybody. How are you doing? Fantastic, Patrick. Thank Good. you so much for having me. Of course. Pleasure Thank you to for be being here. had, as we say. And uh, you're here today to talk about... Well, we decided to talk about rags. Open your eyes, fella. Just take a breath. Please don't tell me that again. Don't tell me how it all belongs to me. Just take a breath, Bella. Not outdoors, Papa. Every time I take a breath, I yeah. Open your eyes, Bella. No, open yours, Papa. Mine are open wide, and let me tell you what I see. Rags. Rags. This land of freedom we had to run to, and now we're free just like every to wear rags It's all day seeing them All day smelling them All day listening to peddlers Selling them rags Rags is uh, sort of in, in my career uh, or whatever, uh, I think pretty um, monumental in many ways. It was my first Broadway show as an actor, mm -hmm. so that's always wow, what monumental. A, I was going to say. And what a... um, the show itself, as you may know, had lots of trials and tribulations, uh, both prior to Broadway and during its pre-Broadway uh, assemblage, and uh, <laughs> so and and meanwhile there was there was bright-eyed, bushy-tailed me, just absorbing every second of it and loving every second of it, I'm as sure. I still do because I love theater and I love uh, I love this show, and. Um, as far as the cast album goes, they did make an album finally. Right. Um, and uh, but it was it was actually more of a concept album. Right. It was not an original cast recording. 
partly because they'd spent every single cent and then some uh, of the money they had raised for the show just to get to an opening night on Broadway in New yeah. York. So I don't know how far back you want me to go, well, but I'm happy to uh, to take you through my experience with it if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. It's the so Rags is for those of us who are theater nerds, a famous famous musical. Uh, it's I mean it's Charles Strauss, it's it's Annie and Bye Bye Birdie, it's Stephen Schwartz, who at that point I think would was Godspell, obviously Pippin, mm-hmm. Mass, and he was about to do Children of Eden. I, th- I don't think he'd done mm-hmm. Children of Eden yet. Uh, and it's so it's Titans. Joseph Stein wrote the book, mm-hmm. and it is uh, Titans of music theater coming together to tell the story, which is probably a good place to start the story of Rags. Could you summarize the plot? Sure. The- well, it was conceived to be a sort of sequel of the sort of plight of the Jewish people from where Fiddler left off. Right. And uh, that was sort of the notion that compelled them all to begin working and writing the show. And and they chose to set it at the sort of turn of the century, the last century, when especially Jewish immigration was at its peak in this country. And as we know that those years, 19... 100 to 1920 saw the influx of, of many peoples to this country, but among them, many of them were, Jew, were Jews fleeing the atrocities in, in their homelands. And the, you know, amazing thing, and if not somewhat sad thing, is uh, how increasingly relevant the story yeah. has become in later yeah. years, and I'll get to that in a, in a second too, but the... Uh, the story centers around uh, f- uh, some fictitious characters, but all set in this historical reality um, mm-hmm. of of the um, early 1900s New York City and what it m- might have taken and did take uh, thousands and thousands of families to sort of try to set up shop here, literally. Yeah. Um, in many cases, those were sweatshops working out of the uh, Lower East Side apartments where they congregated. Um, obviously, many people got uh, moved inland uh, to be with relatives that had already made that journey. But so many of them congregated here in New York City, and it created uh, lots of excitement and lots of uh, exciting things happening. Um, but it also created a lot of strife and misery. Um, all of it, though, better than what they were fleeing. Yeah. And uh, in terms of many, if not most, immigrant experiences. Um, I don't think it was unique in in that sense. So they were happy to be here, and no matter how hard it was. And so that uh, tension and that sort of um, combustion of all of those people and all of those stories and all of the strife and all of the hope and all of the dreams and the expectations all coming together in one story, one sort of cross-section of, of the, the experience for those people was really exciting. And Charles Strauss, uh, in my opinion, uh, Rags represents, I think, one of his strongest scores uh, of his many. Uh, it's such a rich score, and it's so smartly and beautifully uh, capitalizes on not only the music of the period, but the ethnic uh, mm-hmm. uh, components of that, and the 
exciting clash between klezmer and jazz and uh, Americana and old world European um, music from their heritage. It's, it, it's just an exciting, and he really took full advantage of that, I think, in this score. And, uh, you know, the show, when it was casting for its Broadway production, had had a, a workshop, a long workshop, eight-week workshop mm. down at 890 Broadway, where most of the pre-Broadway shows would rehearse and, and work. And I auditioned uh, at a cattle call, a chorus call, mm. and uh, was cast in the workshop of the show. And we spent weeks rehearsing. And um, the show uh, had, had its workshop presentation and then finally uh, accrued its financing a few years later, as it always takes. <laughs> right. And they had chosen Joan Micklin Silver to direct the original Broadway musical of the show. And I was one of only four actors out of the workshop that got chosen to really? actually do the Broadway show. Oh, wow including all the principals and, and so on. And they had cast this uh, amazing singer, Teresa Stratus, who was known most in the opera world to play the lead role of Rebecca. Mm -hmm. And um, I could not, I'll never forget, you know, first setting eyes on her, this diminutive powerhouse of a, of a woman and person uh, who you'd never expect to sing the way she does. and. She, um, she was magnificent in the role, so powerful and yet vulnerable, mm. um, which of course is, I think, you know, necessary ingredients for almost any, any role in the theater um, in a way, but, but certainly for this character, mm. we, it, it was essential the audience sort of get on board that boat with her yeah. and, and experience the journey through her eyes and, uh, and her young son, uh, David, who, who uh, the character of David, who, who um, she embraces the new world with. And uh, so such beautiful moments in the show. And we were about two weeks into rehearsal for the Broadway production, and they fired her, the <laughs> Joan Micklin Silver, because she had directed, um, you know, she was uniquely right to direct the show in many ways because she had. Uh, among her other accomplishments, directed a movie called Hester Street, oh, which sure. was uh, in large part the sort of this plot inspiration mm -hmm. behind a lot of the characters in Rags, although it wasn't based on Hester Street. There's actually now a musical based on Hester mm -hmm. Street that is actually in the works. Um, but uh, Rags was loosely, I'd say, based on Inspired some of the situations sure. that were presented in Hester Street. And Joan Micklin Silver d directed that film. I think it was in the '70s or something like that. It wasn't. It wasn't, you know, decades and decades uh, earlier, mm -hmm. certainly. But th the style of the film was shot as though it was shot like in the '30s or '40s. Which oh, was, right. Mm -hmm. It's black and white, very kind of grainy and gritty, and very patient filmmaking, mm -hmm. but beautiful performances, um, and uh, remarkable. Uh, remarkably patient storytelling. Uh, so they thought she'd be a natural for this world, presenting this mm -hmm. world, and, and wanted her in a way to do sort of the same thing with this piece. But a musical, of course, is very different than a movie, as we all know. Yes. It's a different medium, and certainly it's, it, it's told at a different pace and with different um, priorities, I guess, and values. So uh, 
they quickly f discovered, they meaning the producers of the, of the show, discovered that they wanted somebody more secure in the musical theater vernacular and, and world to, to direct the show. They let her go without having someone to replace her. So oh we continued to rehearse the show with the wonderful Stephen Schwartz, the wonderful Charles Strauss, and the wonderful Joe Stein, all present every day rehearsing. And literally we would get, you know, they'd split our rehearsals and Charles would take one of the scenes in the one room and Stephen would take the other scene in another room oh and we'd gosh. rehearse the show. Yeah. And we not only rehearsed the show, um, but opened it in Boston for mm. our out of town tryout at the Schubert Theater in Boston without a director listed in the program. And we spent, so we spent another four weeks in New York, another three or four weeks teching the show in, in Boston. And then I believe it was close to two to three months of previews in Boston, continuing to work on the show while they brought pe every, many people from the industry up to see the show, yeah. hoping to enlist a director to take, take on the, the already running show. And the show is getting, uh, as, as I recall it, quite remarkably positive reviews in mm -hmm. Boston, many of them saying things like, huge potential here. Mm -hmm. If they just get a few things to right. you know, click, uh, they're gonna have a great uh, hit on their hands, et cetera. So, and again, the, the pressure was on and we were doing a lot of uh, work uh, during the days on the show. It was one of those classic pre-Broadway experiences where you're rehearsing one show during the afternoon and then performing the old one at night right. until a new number, which might take three or four days to get ready is ready to go in and then, then you put or it in. the right. orchestrations weren't ready so you're doing a few th new things on piano only and the uh, in the in the previews but we all loved it for the most part and, uh, and up to a certain point um, but at a certain point months into our preview process there they started trying to buy our days off and mm. back then you know an equity minimum uh, cost for a day off was something like a thousand dollars or whatever, and and oh, wow. and back then that was, was gonna say. a considerable amount of money. But we still had to vote whether we would right. agree to come in for the day off or not. And we got so tired that most people were voting not to do it um, a, a, a couple of times at least. Not that they weren't all pitching in and everyone, right. but it was a fantastic cast of of stellar performers oh, yeah. and performances, not only Teresa Stratus, but uh, people like Larry Kurt and Joanna Glushak and um, Judy, Judy Kuhn, Kuhn yeah. and, and Terrence, uh, Larry, Mann. Uh, Terrence Mann and Lonnie Price. Yeah. And it was just a remarkable group of people. And you could tell the ones like myself who were new, newer to the business who were like, this is amazing. <laughs> and the ones like them who were like, cut my agent on the <laughs> phone. Is this, is this really what we signed up for? And, um, and uh, they not only let Joan go, but other choreographers along the way. And Charles Strauss created a T-shirt that he handed out on opening night that said, I was in rags with, and it listed all the people that had been let go. Oh, my gosh. And then it said, I sur and I, <laughs> and survived, I survived, or something like that. Oh, my and, gosh. Uh, um, it was it was exciting, and we did move into New York, and um, and we we had uh, an opening here 
we limped our way to the finish line because they had spent so much money continuing to work on the show, continuing to bring people in, uh, continuing to try to restaff and, and the show as they had to let other people go, et cetera, that uh, we basically had enough money to get to opening night, and then the rest was up to the ticket-buying public. And um, But there was not even enough hours, literally, for, for that to really kick in. So we opened on a Friday night, or a Thursday or Friday night in New York after a few weeks of previews. And the closing notice, we opened, I think, on a Thursday night, and the, closes, the closing notice went up on a Friday night. Oh. That they were going to close that Sunday. Yeah. Not even do our two weeks or whatever the bond would have paid for or should have paid for. And so... The cast was, of course, we all were devastated. And uh, I remember after the Saturday matinee, uh, after that Friday notice went up, we said we were going to protest mm. the closing of Rags oh, okay. and fighting the power of the critics. I was going to say, you're all you're mm, juiced up from the we show. We were juiced yeah. up from the show. <laughs> and I wore uh, six foot high stilts in the show at that point. Oh, I right. played Uncle Sam at one point in the show. And... Um, so I had these stilts, and so we said, we're going to do a protest walking down Broadway, the cast. And we invited at the curtain call, we said, anybody who wants to join us for this little protest parade, feel free to join us, you know, because mm -hmm. we want to see if we can make a difference and keep the show running. So we had posters that we made up, keep rags running and, you know, power to the people or yeah. whatever it was, <laughs> power to the ticket buyer. And we were, you know, we... Even even less jaded voices than mine, uh, like mine, um, mm -hmm. were kind of seeing the writing on the wall, obviously, and knew it was pretty much a long shot. But we were all really had invested so much by then. Sure. I think we felt like a little part of us was, was closing down, too. And we showed up on the street, and I had my stilts on, mm -hmm. and we came out the stage door at Lund Fontaine Theater on West 52nd Street, or Mark Hellinger, sorry, right. theater uh, on West uh, 52nd, and the entire street was full of the audience that had just been there, over 1,100, 1,200 people, and it looked like every single one of them stayed because the cars could not get through, and so I put the stilts on, and I could see the whole crowd, yeah. and we all started walking down Broadway, and we're stopping traffic, and course we got on a news station yeah. or two that night and sold a few tickets for the sure. next day but but uh <laughs> and we even they got to the point where we left the theater and people were saying like we'll probably call you in a week or two maybe when ticket sales pick up it's right. like yeah sure yeah, sure so of course that was that was it for his broadway run um so far um but it was really exciting and they did as i was saying did a, a concept album which they just asked a few folks from the ensemble to do, and I wasn't one of them. But but uh, um, it was a it was great that they were able to to record the music and mm -hmm. and, and have a record of it. Yeah. And uh, I'm not sure. I don't have inside information on why they didn't have Teresa Stratus do it. It could have been right. a negotiation. I have a feeling um, that didn't go their way. But. Um, uh, Julia McGinnis did the did the the lead role in the album, and many of the other principals from the Broadway cast did did do it. Um, and it's a it is a wonderful record of the show, and as I said, one of the richest um, 
scores of, of Charles's, I think, uh, that exist, and, and some um, phenomenal orchestrations by young Michael Starobin, yes. who, who did a beautiful job with it. So I'm really glad it was recorded. And uh, cut to many years later, uh, they, you know, after, since Joe Stein passed away, um, they've started to revive some, some interest in, in the show due to, in very large part, I think, the immigration situation yeah. that the entire world is facing yes. and, and dealing with uh, or trying to. And I'm really glad that that's reignited interest in the show because it's a show that deserves interest it deserves um a life a, or a further life or an afterlife whatever you'd call mm -hmm. it and uh they did a production that i had nothing to do with up at goodspeed opera house three or four years ago and then i had the opportunity last year to direct a production right. of it at uh, nyu steinhardt school of music with uh, graduate and undergraduate students in the cast and it was very exciting because um I'm still quite actively in touch with Stephen Schwartz. We've worked on other projects together over the years, uh, and he's a wonderful man. And he and David Thompson, who was sort of taking over book writing duties since Joe passed, um, have been working on this new new version with Charles um, that had done good speed, but they were still learning mm -hmm. a lot from the production at Goodspeed. The show, uh, in, in a nutshell, has gotten much smaller in focus and focused uh, instead of trying to do such a broad sweeping um, sort of uh, canopy, I guess you would, or, or canvas of the entire immigrant experience. They focused, they, they, they chose to, 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 to reveal that immigrant experience, but through just these, these, this one family and focused a little bit more insularly on, on the family. And it's made the show more dramatic. They made some really other, uh, other exciting choices that raised the dramatic stakes in, in, in great part between uh, Rebecca and uh, the young girl in the, in the, in the show. Um, and uh, that relationship is really interesting and has undergone a lot of, a lot of uh, new, new material as well. So uh, I had a fantastic time re reliving the show and also living the new, new parts of it and exploring it with Stephen in the room and Charles in the room uh, and, and David as well. And uh, it was such an exciting experience to, to live through again in a way, um, now from a completely different uh, directorial yeah. perspective. What did you, what did you, uh, as a director, I mean, it must be hard to work on material like that. That was obviously your first Broadway show. You were there for a lot of versions of it, if you were there for the workshop and then up mm -hmm. through this. I mean, this is a show they've been writing for 30 years. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, you know, things have come in, things have gone out, things have moved around. When you came in to direct it, was it hard to approach it sort of with fresh eyes or had the material enough time passed and the material was so new and, and vibrant that it was a little easier. I, it might've been harder. It had, I directed some of those earlier mm -hmm. versions, I think because I was in it, I, I really did experience it from that perspective as an actor. And you know, when I, and I still do act once in a while. And I used to think as I started directing that it would be really hard for me to be an actor again, uh, because, uh, but but the few times I've had a chance to act uh, and not be directing mm -hmm. the show, I've actually really embraced it and had no problem just <laughs> shutting off that part of my brain oh, because it's a, it's a nice relief um, in many ways. 
And conversely, it's also, um, you know, as an actor, I found myself, one of the reasons I started showing an interest and, and following up on an interest to direct was that I found myself as an actor, especially doing new shows where we're working on the same thing over and over and trying to solve problems in the writing. Mm -hmm. I really got excited by that as an actor more than mm. many actors did. And I also found myself watching sort of out of body uh, the stage and seeing how uh, the directors were composing the stage and also composing themselves as they worked through any particular problem. And, and I would try to second guess directors coming up with a solution. And I, more often than not, would also be very free with my suggestions about things, <laughs> always, you know, choosing the right time Politely pretty well. Right, yeah. um, and most of the time we're appreciated for, for any, any of those uh, ideas, but I, I did find myself sort of watching from the outside mm -hmm. as an actor, and it was one of the things that made me want to pursue directing was mm -hmm. that I, I kind of felt like, hey, I, I do imagine how this could work, mm -hmm. and, and um, I was very lucky to work with so many, many uh, notable and many not so notable directors, all of whom I learned so much from, and that was really my sort of graduate school in, sure. in theater or directing, for sure. But um, so when I got to direct uh, Rags, um, it, it wasn't a difficult experience in terms of having to shut off or shut out anything that I had done prior. On the contrary, it really helped me appreciate where the mm. writers had clearly wanted to take the show and, and really understand um, that this was a more promising direction for it. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was behind it 100%. And it was, you know, it helped me uh, more confidently make a few humble suggestions and sure. in a few cases of, of where I think the show could still uh, still tighten or, or be improved and um, um, but more than that it just it, it was really exciting for me to just re-explore the material again because it, it felt like a new show in many ways yeah um, and especially the context in which I was now doing it downtown in the West Village right literally across the street diagonally from the Triangle Shirt factory where yeah. the famous fire that takes Which place during the, the show, show. Yeah. and is made even more climactic in this version and there was a lot of interest in it so it was fun to be there too when folks producers as well as other theaters were coming to see the show mm -hmm. in this latest form um, so that was it was really exciting it was and it was also really exciting as an educational experience for the students that were involved. Yeah. They were thrilled to be doing a show that was being uh, worked on still. And of course they were thrilled when, when uh, these notable writers uh, right. with uh, such, such uh, legendary um, careers and, and work to their credit um, would, would show up at a first rehearsal or Charles came to the Zitz probe and you know mm. we had an orchestra of 15 17 people plus an, an eight person choir on stage choir for the show because I didn't want the cast to over inflate because right. they were now sort of downsizing it so we came up with this idea of, a, of an on-stage choir that sort of became part of the extended mm -hmm. orchestra because I wanted to give as many students an opportunity right. to participate in the show. Was as it well. like a Greek chorus or was it? Yeah, a, well, they were kind of a Greek chorus. They would they would involve themselves a little bit, mm -hmm. but I was trying to restrain the cast size to sure. to to stay in proportion to the writing direction that right. the show had gone in. So um, I think we did that successfully. We still had a fairly small cast, that, sure. but but we're able to include those other other voices literally and it sounded glorious it just was really really exciting and both Charles and Stephen and and, and, and David too were 
I think, quite, quite happy with, uh, with what they saw and heard. Um, I, I was thrilled to hear it was, it was being, that you were doing it at NYU with uh, our mutual friend, Heather Jackson. Yes. Um, who we told me, she's Heather. like, I'm going to New York to do the show called Rags. Have you heard of it? And my jaw hit the floor. <laughs> um, because it is a show that is in this legendary pantheon for, for, as I say, theater nerds like me of these shows that, I mean, it ran for four performances. Mm-hmm. And for people like me, when I look at the theater and, and listen to these shows, especially when they were lucky enough to have recordings of some of these shows, because obviously if a show doesn't run for very long, very often there isn't a recording of it. And it's great that this, like you say, this recording was made later. You, you sort of, after you get over the initial shock of thinking like, gosh, I wonder what went wrong or I wonder what the problem was, or sort of, and you really listen to the material you kind of can hear like, oh, this is, I mean, it is, it's Charles Strauss and Stephen Schwartz. These people know what they're doing, you know, and it is, there's a lot of depth and, and breadth and ambition in the score and in this story. And you just sort of look at it as a, a period of like, the, the one thought is often said about shows that don't run for very long, that it was ahead of its time. And I don't know if that's true of this piece exactly, but it does certainly feel like now is the appropriate, like it's again, as you say, unfortunately, an appropriate thing for us to talk about and to be in the mood to, to really be thinking about mm-hmm. uh, the, the immigrant experience and especially surrounded with this disaster that we all learn about in social studies in fifth grade and kind of have an abstract view of. And the show does a lovely job of springing the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory mm-hmm. on us mm-hmm. very late and realizing that, I mean, as the character of Bella, who, who was played by Judy Kuhn on the recording and, and in the Broadway cast, um, isn't going to make it. I mean, there's this terrible moment late in the show where Rachel hears about this fire and they tell you where it is and you kind of go, oh, like you know more than she does about what's about that this, this is a sea change. This is a moment in history where things changed yep. for the better but in order for that to happen there had to be this horrible disaster and you just know she's not she's not coming out of it you, with that sort of the historical certainty yeah that has such a, a, a depth to it i think it was brave writing uh, then and and now um now certainly it's not every play and musical has some drama in it i hope right. and so conflict uh, obviously is is the drama f- um that every show is looking for, and uh, but but it it was uh, you know it reminds me of of, of Warhorse where they mm. they create a character an audience loves so much <laughs> that you can't bear the thought of it yeah. of it dying or of the character dying, and they certainly did that with Bella, and they they doubled down on that I think in this rewrite because they actually created a scenario. If I'm not mistaken, that uh, Rebecca actually gets Bella her job in the factory, oh. and she feels doubly <laughs> responsible oh, for man. for the yeah. you know her fate, and so that's a small example of the yeah. of the of the tightening of that the screws really, yeah. that they that they've done with the piece, and and it makes it even more devastating, of course, not just to the audience, but to but to Rebecca and to the audience for Rebecca. Yeah. Um, uh, and um, also built a created a, a new character. They got rid of uh, Rebecca. Used to have a fiance that she used to find in America, right. which more closely parallels the movie Hester Street and the and the struggle that the the 
gentleman in that relationship in Hester Street has between his new assimilated persona right. and the the, the old the Jewish uh, right. uh, male, uh, you know, husband from the shtetl that that his wife remembers, right. and uh, of course that conflict uh, rends the two of them apart eventually. Uh, in you know, when when Rags was first done, that character still existed. Mm-hmm. And she has she finally finds her husband, right? At the end and of that he one. has yeah. changed. Um, He's changed his name. He's changed but his uh, name. in this case, uh, they've made him a complete n- newcomer into her life, mm. uh, an Italian immigrant who lives in the same building, mm. uh, named Sal, and uh, and uh, the character is now, I think. Is, is terrific because it allows that relationship to be on an even keel and have a sort of clean slate. Um, and uh, he also, though, uh, provides a lot of, I think, welcomed uh, humor in the piece as well. Mm-hmm. So, so they've done some some really clever things with it, and and uh, and I think the show really, uh, you know, I'm very hopeful the show has another opportunity sure. to for for life. Absolutely. And it, now when you, from a sort of pragmatic stand, though, something else I'm very interested in is because out of this, I mean, this, this show opens and closes, and then out of this cast, I mean, you have Lonnie Price, who had already done one of the most famous flops in Broadway history with Mary Lou We Roll Along, <laughs> uh, and, but of course had a career in front of him, as we know, and, and yourself. You also have two cast members who are going to go on to uh, Les Mis, Mm-hmm. With Terrence Mann and, and Judy Kuhn, mm-hmm. and Judy Kuhn, who was in the unusual position of performing a song from this show, the title song from this show, at the Tony Awards, and then having to run backstage and change into Cosette to do one day more <laughs> for Les Mis. Um, and Dick Letess is in the show. I forget. Yes, God, right. He's such a good yeah. actor. Uh, Wonderful. But when the show closed, what, as an actor, what did that do, not only to your career as a sort of auditioning actor in New York City, but also personally to you as someone who had invested years and, 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 and uh, an energy and emotion into the show? And like you say, it, it was so something you were also passionate about. You staged a protest down Broadway about it. Right. On Monday morning, you know, what was the... It's devastating. And I, I have to say, you know, Stephen's reaction, well-publicized reaction, yes. was that he'd never do theater again. Yeah, and he didn't for a long time. Yeah. and it was it's sort of that that uh, inciting incident that you'd say was responsible in many ways and for his going to California and the vast success he enjoyed yeah. in the movie uh, scoring and and mo- soundtracks uh, that he created for many famous films that we know, uh, Pocahontas, etc. And um, uh, I think every one of us felt the same thing to some degree, Mm -hmm. like, oh my gosh, if a show like this that has so much heart and so much, even then, important things to say about what's happening in the world today cannot make it, and with the cast that you just named off, and with a score that's deliriously remarkable, and then you know what hope is there, right? Uh, so it, it it it's hard not to feel that discouragement, certainly. But you also realize that there were a lot of factors involved. Yeah. There were some poor decisions that were made, not by the creative immediate creative team, I'd say, but by young fledgling producers and older fledgling right. producers <laughs> who had the best interests of the show in mind. Mm-hmm. 
but you know wanted to I think when they got Teresa Stratus on board, they also chose a set designer who was from the opera world only, and it's not like the set was unsuccessful, but they got it a lot of people. It's a very operatic set, though. It like, was. When you say that, like, that it's makes true. a lot of sense to me. It's, it's true. A very, and, I, and it's a hard difference to articulate other than if you look at photographs of it and you go, oh, and, yeah, that could be an opera. And Joan Micklin-Silver is a wonderful person, and, and you know she probably doesn't deserve that much blame since she... Everyone knew she had never right. directed a musical right. before. Hired with <laughs> open eyes, yeah. Uh, but but uh, at the same time, I've come to appreciate since those days mm -hmm. how what what responsibility a director does bear to bring and attract the right people around them to make the show work for the environment it's mm -hmm. scheduled to be presented oh, yeah. in. And, oh my gosh, yeah. And uh, my, for example, if I were Joan Micklin Silver in that situation. Uh, I probably would have felt more comfortable hiring people that had more of a background in theater to back me up mm -hmm. than hiring people that were new to it, including the star, yeah. uh, who ended up missing many, many performances because she herself was not used to performing eight times a week. Oh, okay. And in fact, Christine Andreas, who was her standby, ended up opening the show in Boston uh, for, oh, wow. for uh, Teresa because it was hard for yeah. her. And so That's there was a, a, lot of, role. a lot of unknowns that should have been known kind of thing, yeah. uh, in my opinion. Uh, and again, this isn't taking away from any of them personally. I think it's, they were all, I think, to their credit, brave in trying to really do something new and exciting. Mm -hmm. And you have to be prepared to fail, I suppose, if that's the primary objective. Um, but... I feel like that that's one of the things I've come to appreciate, you know, that might have been different. So you so in terms of moving on, you you have to look to the next experience to and and learn from it and say what could have happened better? What mm -hmm. if I were in charge? Sure. What would I have done differently or could I do differently now knowing what happened uh, the next time I'm faced with that challenge? So, you know, you have to grow from everything in life, you know, sure. or, and you have to move on. Um, and of course, we know Stephen himself came back to the theater yeah, just in, a a big, in a big, wicked way. Um, <laughs> and has never left. And has never left. And we're, I'm, we're, uh, those of us who have been fortunate enough to work directly with him or, or, or not, we've all been you know, so grateful that, that he's still speaks it through the theater uh, when he chooses to, and, and he's doing it all over the world now, and mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's very, oh, yeah. very exciting to see. It's, it's interesting to me, it just occurred to me, that both you and Lonnie Price became directors, mm -hmm. and I wonder how much of that is... I mean, obviously, you have a, a talent for it, and, and that's the way your mind kind of goes. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been able to stick with it and make a career out of it. But I wonder how much of that comes from having done shows that you were so emotionally invested mm. in that did not did not run because you then afterwards, like you say, you reflect on it and go, go what would I have done yeah. differently? And then go, you get this, I think, maybe this urge to fix it and go, you know, because Lonnie <laughs> obviously famously has staged merrily yep. many times. He's, yep. it, and it, it is something that... And you went, I mean, I also have to say, because we're, we're going to have to talk about the show, or at least one of my listeners will be very, very mad at me, which is <laughs> the next, if I'm not mistaken, the next Broadway show you did after this was Star Mites. Is that correct? Uh, yes, I believe so. Yeah. And that's another show that, I mean, ran longer than Rex. Sure. But 
and you were nominated for for a Tony Award for it in a in a role that how long did that makeup take? <laughs> uh, maybe an hour or so. Man, those pictures are are amazing. Yeah. And obviously, that Starmites is a different show with a more of a comedy bend to it. Sure. And, and and but it's still also trying something very different on yeah. on the Broadway stage than it really has ever been seen. It's never been done quite that way, mm. I think, since. And then you know that show closes and you're you're sort of back where you started in some ways i've heard actors and directors say like when or composers when a show ends it's like man like you've got to start all over again with a blank sheet of paper and i wonder if, if you if you would agree that 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 sort of sense of like gosh what would i have done differently how could we have made it work is one of the reasons you sort of got your director brain kind of churned yeah i think so i think that's a fair statement for sure i mean uh, as i said one of my pastimes as an actor was you know, what would I do? Yeah. And I would play what would I do all the time. And mm-hmm. I got to play what would I do watching people do what they do. <laughs> um, people like Graziella Danielle, who was a huge influence. Mm. I was already directing when I was hired by Livent to be in the final pre-Broadway workshop of Ragtime mm. playing the role of Houdini. And I got to be up there for weeks uh, watching her and, and um, uh, wonderful director Frank Galati just watching the two of them and uh, this uh, cast they had assembled to put the, that complex uh, story of ragtime together was uh, was truly a, a lesson every day. And 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 even that show, when it opened on Broadway, wasn't entirely successful, right. according to everyone. Right. Uh, and yet, um, uh, I it was completely engrossing and and uh, encompassing, sort of all encompassing to sort of try to stay ahead of the curve and figure out what what could be done and so any original show especially any original musical is is so complex um i would say yes it's it's fantastic training ground for directing right whether the show is successful or not i suppose but and i guess you could argue if it the less successful it is (laughs) the more gaps there might be between what you would have done and what was done or uh or or maybe not there is all those moments where so i'm interested not to harp, but to, I'm interested in what did it, when was the moment for each of those two shows that you knew that you were in trouble, I should say, the production, not you personally. Oh. But like, so there's the, in, in the, the um, I, I keep talking about Merrily because there's so much written about it, mm-hmm. the, the, the great documentary that just came out about it, where they talk about how everybody thought everything was great until the first preview. Yeah. And once they put it in front of an audience, they realized... I oh, think that's often the time that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you were in Boston for a really long time. Yes, with and, and yeah, and. But again, I don't necessarily feel like the show couldn't have been successful oh, had sure. it been produced. Had they had the the resources to sort of keep it going mm-hmm. for a bit. Um, so there, I don't know that I ever had that moment with Rags, like, oh, oh wow. this is not going to work. Obviously, yeah. when they fire the director, that's not a great moment yeah. in the but journey so of early the show. The journey, and it yeah. happened so early, though, that we felt like we had compensated for that. Right. We, meaning everybody working on the show, was right. had their all in it. And and uh, and certainly nobody was giving up the ship. Right. Uh, they We were all invested in it, um, no matter how tired any of us might have been. So... I feel like that was part of the heartbreak of that show is that we, there was never one of those moments where it's like, yep, we didn't, we didn't get it right. It was just that 
there were too many things, too many little things that we did. Well, that, that explains we got wrong. I mean, that really explains the protest too. Um, like when that closing notice went up, I'm sure you were all just like, "I'm sorry, what?" Yeah, <laughs> right. exactly. But there's been other shows where I certainly relate to that first audience experience, and that's why, uh, as a director, I always we we always say anyone in the theater says that the final ingredient to any show is is mm -hmm. the audience, of course, because if it's not a if it's if it's nothing more than this it's it, it the theater has to be at least an exchange of ideas between yes. what's happening on the stage through the people in the audience and hopefully back onto the stage yeah. and it's a it's a dialogue mm -hmm. and if that dialogue's not happening or if you feel the the enemy of the theater is in the room right. boredom then you know you're in trouble you're in a lot of trouble and um was there uh, a moment in star mites where you thought you were in trouble no i think more the 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 thing we all I think realized a little bit was that we were not out of our element per se but that the element wasn't ours mm. <laughs> the, 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 we, we weren't you know it wasn't the show as you were saying just a minute ago it's, it's, it was not the usual Broadway fair yeah. and so uh, I think there swing. was, there was e even before we opened there was a concern perhaps that we should have been in an off-Broadway theater mm. um, and and done a, a quote-unquote little shop route or whatever right where you know it made more sense to, mm -hmm. to, to many people to do that as it was we were in a small Broadway theater a five four four ninety nine mm -hmm. or 500 seat theater the the Criterion right. theater uh, it was the first show in this theater that no longer exists right, right. in Times Square um, so I can understand the producers eagerness to do that uh, to to compete on Broadway of course um, and all of that the both the pressure but also the potential that that brought with it um, I could certainly understand that and and as you say we we we, we had uh, you know not a complete insignificant run but it wasn't no. it wasn't as long as uh, obviously they would they would, well, hope you would or prefer. anyone right but um, so there was that I think just feeling like were we in the right spot mm. um, for, for that show, and, and that show went on to to be uh, produced uh, hundreds and hundreds of times yeah. in high school theater and mm -hmm. amateur theater, and so it, it is a popular piece, uh, especially with with um, those those uh, that in that ring of, of of theaters, and that's not an insignificant thing. There's a crazy little ditty that's been bopping around. It'll really hypnotize you with its magical sound. It'll make you do all kinds of things you never did do. So dance to the music of the cruelty. Ooh, the cruelty. 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 Doing that cruelty stomp. You gotta shake, shake, shake. Drives you crazy. Shake, shake, shake. Don't be lazy. Shake, shake, shake. To the music of the cruelty. You gotta shake, shake, shake. Groove and rock now. Shake, shake, shake. Bump and bop now. Shake, shake, shake. To the rhythm of the cruelty. There's a whole episode of this podcast about this show oh. from my, my friend Amanda Zeitler, who uh, loves one, Star Mites, yeah. un, un, unironically, and found and, and, and it was her on, it was her entry into the theater. Wonderful, yeah, wonderful. It is a, and it, it is that there is a kind of love of shows that aren't the huge hits there, uh, that I think mm -hmm. a lot of theater fans have, where they, mm. it's a secret kind of that you know about and mm -hmm. you can 
bring to other people when they're when they're of a of a piece. Do you appear on the cast recording for Starmites, the the studio album? Yes, uh, I think so. Yes, okay. yes, yes, I am. Yes, <laughs> I had good. to double check. I'm <laughs> I would imagine they'd get you since you were one of the, yes, the, the Tony nominated performances. No, definitely remember um, recording that. Yeah, it's a, and it's actually. It's it's a I mean it's a it's a small recording obviously for mm-hmm. for Starmites with a with a lot of stripped yeah. down orchestration and I, well, I've been very grateful to be able to hear the um, soundboard recording from the Broadway because oh, cool. it has the full yeah, yeah, yeah. orchestration to it. You really get a sense of like you oh do. wow this was a, a like a big a big show in a, mm-hmm. in a very very big way. Um, so how long did it take from the sort of acting path to fully becoming a, a director for you? It happened fairly quickly once uh, I entertained the idea mm-hmm. and a few other people entertained the idea, <laughs> most significantly. It, it does take, take a people. few other people. Yeah. <laughs> um, in my case, the few other people were uh, the Goodspeed Opera House, uh, now called Good, Goodspeed Musicals, where I'm currently working, uh, doing my 20-something show up there, oh, um, uh, Billy Elliot, which is about to have its press opening tomorrow night. Um, but at the time, in the mid-90s, I was uh, cast to play. I'd done many other shows there as an actor, but was uh, cast, I think, for the first time for me on the main stage to play the, uh, the villain in It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman oh, sure. by Charles Strauss. Yes. And so I played Abner Sedgwick yes. in the show. And uh, we... Um, were you know rehearsed for a month and performed for three months as they still do there right. for the most part and um, that was a long time for me as an actor even I was always busy with doing multiple projects at at once uh, in the original cast of Forever Plaid and other right. shows I would do Shakespeare. I should say to people you were in the original cast of a runaway hit. Eventually, there you eventually go. it did. One, one of them. <laughs> it broke your way. <laughs> <laughs> one of them. But the. You know, I would do a show at the Roundabout Theater in The mm-hmm. Tempest and then run down to or up to the Triad, which is was Paulson's at the time, and, and do a performance of Plaid. So I was used to doing a lot of different yeah. shows to, at the same time, even as a performer. And uh, so at Goodspeed, I was sort of like, what do people do all day? We, you know, we just have the show to do at night. And... Uh, and so I, I saw a small item in the contract where um, it, we had signed it over the years but never been asked to do anything, uh, a, a sort of reading clause where you said you, you agreed to offer your services for readings of new material oh, sure. mm-hmm. on your day off. And uh, everyone just signed it without ever really right. reading it. But, but I read it one time and asked the casting director about it and said, what does this mean? And he said, well, Michael Price, the then executive producer of Goodspeed, had always fancied um, or fantasized about having new work developed there more frequently in, mm-hmm. in lab forms and readings. And so I said, well, if I thought of a, if I found a piece that I wanted to do a reading of, would, I, would this theater support me? And uh, they said, yes. And so I said, cool. So I just kind of logged that information away. And now cut to when we were performing the show, we were in performances for Superman. The uh, music director was a guy named Michael O'Flaherty who um, did what the, uh, Superman there was his first show and he never left. He was been oh, a wow. music supervisor at Goodspeed ever since and still is to this day. And his assistant on that show was a young 
writer named Andrew Lippa, who was the dance arranger and assist associate conductor. And that was my first time meeting Andrew. And so uh, he played me a one-act musical he had written as a BMI exercise uh, with his par writing partner at the time, Tom Greenwald, called John and Jen. And I loved it. I just fell in love with Andrew's writing and his music and, and Tom's as well. And this was a sung-through two-person musical about a brother and sister mm. living up in the specter of uh, an abusive father, but just told through their relationship. Mm -hmm. And it spanned uh, the time from late 50s to mid, or late 60s, essentially. Mm. Um, and it traced their relationship. Uh, uh, and it was a 50-minute show or whatever. Sure. And it ended with... Uh, the young brother, John, going off to sort of prove himself to his father and signing up for the Vietnam War mm. and dying. And the sister, having sort of provoked him, uh, feeling guilty for the loss of, his, of her own brother and for not protecting him. She had gone off with a boyfriend to dodge the draft to, mm. to Canada and leaving her brother to the whims or influence of their abusive okay, father. Yeah. And so she took on that guilt. And uh, we came up with an idea for a second act to the show where she has a child, the child she mm -hmm. ends act one with, uh, pregnant with, she bears this child at the top of act two and she now has a son she names John. And the same actor who plays her brother mm -hmm. in act one plays her son in act two and the second act is a beautiful mother-son journey where she has to uh, let go of her son and let sure. him live his own life, not being overprotective of him to compensate for uh, how she feels responsible for her brother's death. So that's sort of the psychological background yeah. to a little show called John and Jen. 20 years she's traveled on with history at her side. A growing boy Reminding her of all she cannot hide Twenty years is far too long To live for what is gone Today, my beloved brother John My silent brother John Andrew wrote the second act in a matter of weeks. I invited the Goodspeed down to see a reading of the full show. We did a reading of it at Goodspeed mm -hmm. one night with just the first act and invited the audience to stay and other casts of other shows rehearsing there to stay. And it was one of the most thrilling nights of my life because I, we had, dire I had directed the reading. Andrew played John, and uh, Kay McClelland, an actress who was playing yes. Lois Lane, played <laughs> Jen. Oh, wow. And uh, Michael O'Flaherty was mm -hmm. the music director for it. And, and so we did this presentation of the first act, and 
people were sobbing. People were just really moved sure. by it. And I was like, wow, this is exciting. I love this feeling of trying to bring a piece to life. And, and, um, and I respected Andrew and, and Tom's writing even more after seeing an audience, you know, interact with it. And so we had a reading of the full piece months later in New York and Goodspeed awarded us a full production of the show at their Norma Terrace Theater the next summer. So within a year of that, I was directing my first show, which was a full production of John and Jen at the Norma Terrace Theater uh, up at uh, Goodspeed in Chester, Connecticut. And it really felt like it every morning was sort of Christmas morning, as I describe it, going into rehearsal or, or even just the pre-production and imagining what the show could look like mm -hmm. and, and realizing that, I mean, it was just a blank page. And, uh, and, and then we had the script and then the, the script is still on, <laughs> the script doesn't come with pictures. Right. So it's like, oh, I have to supply the pictures. <laughs> I have, like, what does this look like? What is the world? And I, you know, was so proud of the, the production and the design we came up with in um, that next summer for the production. And uh, we attracted a wonderful producer and now close friend, Carolyn Rossi Copeland, who produced the show off-Broadway at her theater at the time called the Lambs Theater. Um, and the show ran for over a year there and, and um, has also gone on to, to be published. And, and it led to not only a relationship with, with Andrew that continued with a show that he wrote called The Wild Party, right. which I directed at Manhattan Theater Club, but also my uh, one you know relationship with Carolyn Rossi Copeland, who produced the show that I worked with Heather on, uh, a more recent version of uh, Amazing Grace that she oh, yes. produced on Broadway, mm -hmm. which I directed. So, And you directed that down at the, the Museum of the Bible, I did. as well? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Down in D.C. So, a lot of my friends were in that production. So that, oh, great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so that one seminal experience, that just from reading that thing in a contract, mm -hmm. you know, and, and bothering to, to ask to about, ask about it, it. And, yeah, then, yeah. and then to ask Andrew, hey, do you write music? And... Um, that all, you know, that's how it started. And then from that point on, I got such a high from directing and I felt like I was using more of my brain than I was mm -hmm. asked to use. I think an actor has to be really smart. And I took, chose a career in the theater because I couldn't decide between law and, and the theater. I was interested in a lot of different things. And, uh, but I realized that one day after acting class early, my early months in New York realized that to be a good actor, you had to be a good lawyer because you had to mm -hmm. defend your character. You had to make a case for your character and understand why they did what they did. You had to be a good psychologist. You had to be an athlete. You had to be a good artist because you had to be aware of everything and everybody and and be an observer of of the world and and all of that. And so I realized that as a as a for the life our life in the theater was really about using every bit of who I was. But as a director, I was using even more of my mind, at least. It wasn't as physical, certainly, as performing, but, but um, uh, I really was excited by that um, part of it, and still am. And so I just began to get back to your question, turning down acting work mm -hmm. in favor of directing work whenever there was a choice to be made, and generally, pretty pretty quickly over the next two years or so. What You mentioned that when you got the script, 
and like you say, there weren't pictures in it, and you <laughs> had to. What was the the most surprising thing to you about directing when you started directing that you hadn't maybe anticipated? Well, there was a couple of moments early on where I was like, "Geez, there's a lot of people involved here. There's a direct. There's a, there's a, there's me, the director, of course. But then there's like a choreographer. There's a set designer." There's a costume designer. There's a projection designer. There's a magic designer. There's a props designer. Jeez, all these people really should be talking to each other like <laughs> a lot. So we're like all on the same page. And then I kind of I said like, who's like, right? When when Who do I when's the meeting? Right. And then I realized, oh, I have to kind of like make that meeting, don't I? I'm the one who has to like pick up the phone and say. Um, what do you say we get together and start mm -hmm. talking about the play and mm -hmm. like that the theater if you're getting you know, just because a show is getting produced at a the theater they're not going to do that job for you right. <laughs> so I mean that was sort of crash crash course whatever and it may seem obvious but it's not you know that that sort of awareness you know became uh, extended into every arm of the job in, mm -hmm. in a way and, and ironically now I'm finding my journey, and we we're always learning, right? And one of the things I'm learning to do is let go of things a little more. Sure. Um, and make, uh, I mean, I've always trusted the people that um, I bring into or that are brought into a project that I'm working on, of course, and I'm really, truly, sincerely excited about the collaborative aspect of this art form because it truly is. Mm -hmm. uh, um, but I also can recognize in myself, like, not that I want to do other people's job, but that I want to be, be um, involved in it somehow. Mm -hmm. And I, d I realize that I don't always have to be to every extent. And in fact, some cases it's better if I'm not, so that I either have a fresher perspective on an aspect of the production or allow them to germinate their own ideas. Because everyone has their own process. Mm -hmm. And a lot of t people need time to go back into the barn and kind of take your ideas or whatever and mold them over and then come back with something. So I'm learning to sort of read people a little better that way and mm -hmm. also respect that process even more. Um, but I do love the collaborative aspect of it and, and it's one of the things I continually strive for is a seamlessness between all the departments in any given production. It's a, it's a visual medium and we all have to be on the same page in terms of who's telling what part of the story. Mm -hmm. So there's not redundancy within the departments and right. of uh, you know any various aspect of the show. Sure. Yeah, so, it's a you know kind of traffic cop and psychiatrist. It always seems to me when you're working all, with the director. It's all fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and um, you know at the same time try to understand that we're providing you know what for some people at the at at least will be entertaining mm -hmm. and at the most hopefully will be moving and even transformative, you mm -hmm. know, but also important not to, it's important to take it seriously, of course, but not to be, um, but to also understand it's, it's, uh, it's just a show. Right. And, you know, take, and, and I've also understood more recently, uh, the importance of having a real life too, because mm -hmm. what else are we drawing on? Right. Um, uh, in, yeah, that's in something. Of the theater. That's something a lot of creative people forget. I think. It's true, <laughs> and it's understandable because you know we, if you have a passion for something, it's it's some um, sometimes, and and even as young actors, 
I almost remember feeling like unless you're uh, immersing yourself to the exclusion of everything else, mm -hmm. you're not a real artist. I remember feeling that almost pressure that I either mm -hmm. put on myself or took on from some some uh, some stimulus somewhere right. that you know that you were told you had to be a starving artist and suffer for your craft. Right. And that's, some of that's probably true, mm -hmm. but it, it, <laughs> I don't think we were meant to spend the rest of our lives, you know, sentencing ourselves to misery and misfortune. Uh, you know, you can have happiness in your life and draw just as much on that too. Well, and I think it, it's often neglected that it'll happen. Yeah. Like the starving and suffering will find you. You don't need to go. <laughs> There's so many people who like set out to do that. Like yeah. when I meet, when I work with students or when I, that's, that's where they're headed. And I'm like, no, no, don't. Yeah. It'll, it'll come. <laughs> don't worry. It'll find you. Don't rush. Probably yeah. when you least want it to, but it'll find you. That's a really. And then you, you can live through it and you'll have your war stories and that'll be great. And won't that be fun? Like your theater teacher does, where you can sit and listen to these stories that you love. But yeah, you, you do need to have, like you say, you need to be in the world with people having relationships, having experiences, so that when, as a director, writer, whatever it is, when those moments come in your drama, you go, oh, right, this is how well, yeah, you know, people it's, interact. It's called living. Right. You've got to be alive, and, and, um, and that means dealing with disappointments and dealing with uh, highs, lows, and, and everything in between, and living through it. And, re, you know, and, you know, we ask we directors ask of our actors to be in the moment on stage. That's the primary objective is mm -hmm. to be alive and listen and react honestly as in life, be there, be real. Well, we need to expect the same from ourselves mm -hmm. too. And like be in our own lives yeah. and be aware of what's happening around us and be aware that we have control over it mm -hmm. too. And uh, we have control over every aspect of our life and where we spend our time and, and uh, what we focus on. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that's important for all of us as human beings, but especially <laughs> as artists, I think it, it's uh, particularly important. Thank you so much for this, Gabe. This was a wonderful conversation. I do want to ask, um, as, I, as I usually do at the end of the interview, what your favorite song from Rags is. Whether it's on the recording or not. I know the recording has, is a truncated version. Obviously. Sure. Well, it's hard. Or even if it's a new one. Sure. Yeah. It, it, I know this is going to seem obvious because it's probably one of the best known songs from the score, but Children of the Wind never mm. ceases to make my hair stand up. There's a morning I want someday to see All the children of my children are there and they're very, very noisy running through my kitchen. And we've been there for a lifetime. And I know then they will never be. Just remarkable uh, construction, that song of mm -hmm. lyric on Stephen's part and such anthemic music that, that's, but also just feels it, it, it's unpredictable and yet inevitable at mm -hmm. the same time. And uh, 
we had a moment in the production that I just uh, directed last year where we had the full company on stage and the orchestra, which was also on stage with us uh, as part of the concept. And there were rags hanging all over the proscenium and the back wall and the legs and borders. And at one moment, uh, the, all of the rags that had been there hanging all night, everything fell to the ground and reveals a kind of uh, gritty American flag painted on black cinder block as the back wall. And it had this, uh, mainly due to the song, this overwhelming um, notion of what this country is. Mm -hmm. And that song, I've, and there's something so patriotic about the song mm -hmm. that I almost can't imagine anyone hearing that song and not, and not feeling like we have to do everything we can to continue to keep our doors open and blah, blah, blah. And mm -hmm. I won't get into all of the politics, the obvious politics that, that, that you know, the show's meant to now stir up. Yeah. But, but it is. And that song is an example of, to me, what musical theater can do at its best mm -hmm. to, to, as uh, Harburg put it, you know, lyric makes you um, think and a good music makes you feel mm -hmm. and uh, a good song like that makes you feel a thought mm -hmm. and feel the wave of, of the good that and the opportunity that mm -hmm. we have in this country and that we've enjoyed for a couple hundred years, however much we've tried to bash the hell out of it, right. we're still here. And it also, you can also extend that to humankind. Mm -hmm. um, and it's one of the things that, that, you know, I think strive to do with every theater piece is to have the audience, especially a musical, but, but ideally every theater piece is somehow life affirming. And that song, I think, embodies it all. Thank you so much, Gabe. My pleasure. Wonderful to have Real you. Real pleasure. Thank you so much. The Original Cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. The Original Cast is on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Original Cast Pod. You can follow me, Patrick Flynn, on all platforms at Unknown Penguin. Enjoying yourself? Leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell the world. You can also find the original cast on Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and wherever fine podcasts are available. My thanks to Gabriel Barry for talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. I've got you to lean on. We've got you. To